I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. On our first two nights, I emphasized that Jesus' birth, his taking on of our humanity, our fallen humanity, living a life from the beginning to the end without sinning, and then dying our atonement, our atoning death, and his resurrection from the second death, all of these things he did so as to bring redemption to the whole world. And he has provided this redemption, according to the scriptures, without money and without price. It's a free gift. Is it true? Yes, it is. We're in Revelation chapter 22. I want you to read verse, well, I will read verse 17. Revelation 22 and verse 17. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is athirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Now you need to notice in this verse that there's only two action words, two predicates, two verbs, whatever you want to call it, that's of any consequence in this verse. And the two verbs in this verse are come and take. Do you know that this is all that God requires? Come and take. And I can read it to you from 6 B.C., 6 Bible Commentary, 1071, paragraph 5. Now notice what Ellen White says here. All that man can possibly do toward his own salvation is to accept this invitation. And then she quotes Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. All that a person can possibly do toward his own salvation is to come and take. That's it. Now, the words that follow are so precious, in my sight anyway, in my heart, that I just have to read them. Watch what it says. No sin can be committed by man for which satisfaction has not been met on Calvary. You cannot commit a sin that satisfaction has not met the requirements of erasing that sin. Isn't that wonderful? It goes on to say, Thus, the cross in earnest appeals continually profers to the sinner a thorough expiation. And so what Jesus did at the cross of Calvary offers to the human race, everyone, all the time, a thorough expiation. Um, it blows me away. And all that Jesus is saying here is two things you need to do, come. In John chapter 6, verse 37, it says there that if you will come to me, I will never cast you out. You cannot be a castaway. There's a lot of people who seem to feel that they are so sinful they cannot possibly come to Jesus. And Jesus makes this promise, I know how sinful you are. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how miserable you are today. And there are probably some of us here today miserable over something. And I don't care what sin you will commit in the future. Come. Come. Don't let anything stop you because if you can come to me, I can save you to the uttermost. That's Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25. It says God can save us to the uttermost if we will come to him through Jesus Christ. 
whoever lives to make intercession for us. Isn't that a precious promise? I'm just going to read. I'm, I've got to go there. I, you know, I have a wide margin Bible. And I've got a lot of spirit of prophecy juxtaposed against different verses. And this is John chapter 6, verse 37, where he gives this promise. Now watch what he says. Cling to that promise, John 6, 37. Cling to that promise and you are safe. Present this assurance to Jesus and you are as safe as though inside the city of God. Now friends, if you were inside the city of God today, would you be safe? Do you know where that city is? Well, it's in heaven. Now how safe, could you be more safe anywhere else? You couldn't be any more safe than that. And God says right here, the promise is right here. If you should take this promise and cling to it as if there is no other promise, you are as safe as if you're already in the city of God. Is that a promise or what? Yes. Now turn with me to Psalms chapter 116. Psalms 116. King David is um, somehow getting a picture of all that Jesus has done for him. And he is so overwhelmed with the idea of what God has done towards him for his salvation that he begins to think in his own mind, what can I do to repay what God has done? Now, have you ever thought of doing something to repay what God has done? Well, there's not much you can do, is there? Now look at it in verse 12. This is Psalms 116. We're looking at verse 12. And this is his question. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? And do you know what he concludes? Look at verse 13. I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. You know, there's no way that you and I can do anything to make God happy. Can you imagine what that would be? What would it be? There's no way to do it. Ah, but God has gone out of his way and he's made a sacrifice that is infinite. We can't even understand the thing. And he's, and he's produced a redemption, a plan of salvation that will save your soul and mine. And the only thing that we could do to please God is take the cup of salvation. That's the only thing we could do to please God. And it would please him greatly. Don't you think so? That's it. Come and take and God is pleased. Now, does that mean that there is nothing more for us to do in relation to the gift of salvation? Oh no, oh no. At the very least, there are some decisions that need to be made. You know, I've been talking and someone came to me the other day and, and said, well, you're not saying that we don't have choices, do you? No, I'm not saying that we don't have choices. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what I would like to speak about today. As a matter of fact, we need to, it takes a choice to come. You can come or not come, you know. You can take or not take, and it's a choice. We say that salvation is by faith, is it? Well, sure, salvation is by faith alone. Now, our faith or lack of faith is also revealed in every decision that we make. Did you know that? Yes, when Eve was in the garden, she came to that tree. God said to Eve and to Adam both, Do not eat from that tree 
Because in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. So one day Eve wanders away from her husband. She gets near that tree and there's a serpent in the tree and he's got some other idea. And he says to Eve, did God say that you shouldn't eat from this tree? She says, well, that's right. He said I shouldn't eat from this tree. Well, do you know why he said that? He said that because when you eat from that tree, you shall be as gods. Isn't that what he said? Was it true? Wasn't true. Ah, but listen, look at the situation. Eve had everything. She was very beautiful and she had all that she could possibly need. She was very happy. Everything was great. She couldn't advance any more than she was because she had everything already except for one thing. She wasn't God. And so Satan came over there and presented the one thing she didn't have and said, wouldn't that be an advancement? Wouldn't that be climbing a little higher? And she thought, really, that's true. And God is withholding this from me. Do you know that she had a choice to make? And do you know that the decision she made revealed whether she had faith or unbelief? And what did she have? She had unbelief. That's right. We have a choice whether we are going to worship Sunday or whether we're going to worship on Sabbath. Isn't that true? Sure. And which choice would reveal true faith, do you think? Yeah. Well, doing God's will. It's just that simple, right? You and I have a choice. Well, ladies, you have a choice as to what kind of clothes you're going to wear. You can wear immodest clothes or you can wear modest clothes. Which of the two would reveal that you have faith in God? Yeah. We have a choice. We could be reading a novel, a romantic novel, or we could be re reading the Bible. If you have faith, which one are you going to be reading? And if you choose the Bible, you're revealing that you have what? Faith. That's what, it, that's what, it, try, that's what I'm trying to get at. <laughs> yeah. Faith is revealed in everything we do. And the Bible says, whatsoever is not of faith, is what? Really? Yeah. That's what it says. In Ministry of Healing, 176, paragraph 1, we need to understand the true force of the will. This is the governing power in the nature of man, the power of decision or the power of choice. Now watch. Everything, how many things? Everything depends on the right action of the will. Now turn with me to the parable of the prodigal son. This is what we're doing this week. We're studying together the parable of the prodigal son. This is Luke chapter 15. And we've already gone as far as Luke 15 verse 16. And now we want to be studying the prodigal as he is forced to make some choices. By the way, the prodigal son got himself into a mess. You know that, don't you? And if he was to survive, he needed to make some pretty intelligent choices, some really hard choices. So here we go. Look at verse 18 now. We're in prodigal, we're in uh, Luke chapter 15. We're looking at verse 18. Look at the first three words in verse 18. What does it say? I will arise. Look at verse 20 now, the first three words. What does it say? And he arose. Now I wonder if anyone here is old enough to know that some things are easier said than done. <laughs> Did you know that? 
It was easy for the prodigal son to say, I will arise and return to my father. After all, look at the mess I'm in. But you know that in his head he must have thought like, Ooh, how am I going to be received? I insulted my father and I committed treason against my family and I blew all the money that they gave me and I don't know how I'm going to be received. And so he has a choice. He knows what he would like to do. He knows what his wishes are. But, but how am I going to be? So it's one thing to say, I will arise and go to my father. It's quite another thing to make the decision to actually get up and go. You know, there's another um, saying that I think everyone will understand here. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Everyone knows what that is. Do you know what it means? What does it mean? <laughs> it means that there's going to be a lot of people who are going to wake up in hell, figuratively, who had always wanted to change course. They just never got to change course. So the question this evening is, what does it take with our good in intentions to change course? What is missing with our good intentions? Hmm? Action. Yes, give me another word. The will. That's exactly right. And what is the will? It's to be decisive. It's to make a choice and to act upon it. That's what it says. If you went to Desire of Ages, page 48, 49, it says there, and I'm just paraphrasing it because I don't have it here, but it says the desire to do right is good as far as that goes, but if we stop there, it will amount to nothing. The prodigal son had to do something more than wish and hope and desire to arise and go to his father. He had to put his will on the side of action. He had to get up and go. He had to make a decision. And if he had not made that decision, he might well have perished there of hunger or whatever else because it was not enough to wish and to desire to go to his father. He had to make a decision. Is it important that we make decisions? Is, are the decisions we make important? Ah, oh, friends, every decision reveals whether you have faith or not. They do. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. This is the story of Elijah, Elijah the Tishbite. This is at a time when Israel is at a low ebb spiritually. Um, the king on the throne is a man by the name of Ahab, and he has a wife by the name of Jezebel. By the way, how many of you have named your daughters Jezebel? <laughs> no, she's... She's got a reputation, <laughs> you know, and that's who she is. And she's a strong-minded individual, and she's not a Jewess. She is a Baal worshiper. I don't know which tribe, maybe the Bible says, but I, I don't know right now. In any case, she's a Baal worshiper, and she's strong-minded, and she influences her husband, who is an Israelite, to worship Baal. But because he's the king, then obviously all of Israel is influenced by the king and almost the whole nation, except for 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal, are Baal worshippers. <clears throat> Elijah is concerned. God is concerned. Elijah and God get together. And I don't know who got the idea, but somebody thought, what if it didn't rain for three and a half years? Do you think we'd get their attention? 
And so God said, I think so. So he says to Elijah, I want you to go to Ahab and I want you to tell him that it will not rain and there will be no dew for three and a half years. So Elijah goes to the palace. He gets back by security. He gets right into the king's face and he says, no dew, no rain for three and a half years. Turns around, walks out. And by the time uh, Elijah, no, not Ahab, gets his senses back together again, Elijah's gone, and he searches for him for three and a half years, but he can't find him. Friends, when God hides something, you can't find it. You won't find it. No, that's how it was. Well, at the end of three and a half years, obviously, the earth, the earth is parched. I mean, really cracked and broken. There hasn't been even any dew for three and a half years. Everything is terrible. The animals are dying. People are dying, and they're coming to the place where they're desperate, I assume, And God and Elijah get back together again. And God says to Elijah, go tell Ahab it's showdown time. And so he has Ahab bring all the people of Israel. That's what it says, all the people of Israel. I don't assume that all the people in Israel could climb Mount Carmel and be there. But I assume that the most important were there, the priests of Baal and the prophets of Baal and probably a lot of military and the king was there and a lot of other people. There was a lot of people up on Mount Carmel and Elijah is by himself. He needs to succeed or he's toast. Really, he's in trouble if he doesn't succeed here. But he doesn't seem to be afraid. Now, when he gets there, he puts his finger right on the issue And we're looking at verse 21. This is 1 Kings chapter 18. We're looking at verse 21. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. Now why did the people not answer him, not even a word? It says in the verse. Do you see it there? Because they were halt between two opinions. They were sitting on the fence. They didn't know on which side to get off. They were worshiping Baal, but they were Israelites. They shouldn't have been worshiping Baal, but they had been duped into worshiping Baal. And now here comes someone who faces them with this fact, and they're like, ooh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Do we admit this thing? Do we confess this thing? Do we change our allegiance? They don't know which side to get off. They were indecisive indecisive are you decisive do you make choices and the choices you make are they the right choices have you ever made bad choices you know there are three Elijah's in the Bible right you know that this is the original Elijah He's the first one to come. He comes when Israel is at a low ebb spiritually. He was sent of God to bring a revival that would end up in a reformation of Israel and they would have been serving the Lord again. There is a second Elijah that came also at a time when Israel was at a low ebb, but he came to do what? To prepare the way for Jesus to come. And what was his name? John the Baptist, that's who he was. Now the third Elijah, where do you find him? Yeah, the end time. You can find him in the Bible in Malachi chapter 4. And he's come to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now, it's amazing to me. I've a long time not known what to make of that text because what in the world does turning the fathers' hearts to the children have to do with 
with anything in the end time. Well, friends, have you noticed, I don't know if you listen to the news at all, have you noticed what the world is doing to the families? Do you know how important families are? Do you know that families are being destroyed today? The whole world seems to be bearing down uh, and on destroying families. That's what, God, that's what the devil wants to do. So I assume it has something to do with that. But he has a message. Elijah has a message in the last days. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. I suppose you know where I'm going. The three angels' messages of Revelation 14. And the message in Revelation chapter 3 to the Laodicean church, as far as I'm concerned, are interlinked. They, they belong together. They, they cannot be separated. They're the same message. Yeah, we start with verse 15 in Revelation 3. This is to the Laodicean church, the last church in the last days. Notice what the message is. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you're neither cold nor hot. What does it mean not to be cold or hot? It means they're halt between two opinions. They've got one foot in the world. They don't want to leave the world because if they leave the world, they miss out on all the fun that's out there. And they've got one foot in the church. They don't want to leave the church because they don't want to be lost. And they're stuck between two opinions. We want to go to heaven, but we don't want to go to heaven so much that we can quit sinning. You know, I mean, it's a lot of fun sinning, apparently. Can I tell you a story? When I was 25, I um, began reading the Bible. I was reading, I thought, from cover to cover, and I was going to make a decision. I told you that already. I was going to make a decision about the Bible. After I'd read the whole book, I thought I would do that. You know, I would, I would judge whether it was what it claimed to be. Well, praise the Lord, I'm not the judge of the Bible. Within a couple of weeks, I was so convicted that the Bible was the Word of God that I knew, I knew this was the Word of God and salvation was intrinsically in, entwined with the Word of God. But I was 25 years old and I remember getting on my knees and saying, Lord, I believe. I want to be saved. I love the Bible, but I'm only 25 years old, so what you say you call on me later. Do you know that God spoke to me that time? Not audibly, obviously, but he spoke to my heart and he said, you will not have another chance. And I thought, what in the world? What do you mean I won't have another chance? I'm only 25 years old. I can surely live till I'm 50. That's quite a bit of time. That's another 25 years. That's double my age already. I've got lots of time. And God said, you will not have another chance. And I kept arguing and he kept saying the same thing. Well, it came to my brain that if God is God and he's smarter than I am and he knows the future and he says I won't have another chance, then maybe I won't have another chance. And so he's telling me that I must make a decision right now or I am forever lost. That's what I got out of it. Now, I didn't want to be forever lost. I wanted to have some fun, but I didn't want to be forever lost. And so I had to make a decision and I decided to give my heart to the Lord when I was 25 years old. And do you know, friends, I have never turned back. I have never turned back. Praise God, I am so grateful. And it isn't because of me. The Lord is so good at, at keeping us, you know. 
Yeah. But what did he mean by saying I wouldn't have another chance? I mean, what was he saying? I didn't know. A few months later, uh, as you know, I was working in the nickel and copper mines in Sudbury, Ontario. And uh, my partner was from Gaspé here. And uh, we were a good team. We were doing very well. We were drilling a drift. Now, it's called a tunnel in your head, but underground lingo, it's a drift. We were drilling this tunnel nine feet by nine feet or three meters by three meters. And we, we were in hard granite, hard rock in granite, going with this drift towards an ore body. We got to the ore body and we crossed the ore body 40 feet. So the ore vein, this one specifically, was 40 feet wide. Okay, and veins always run on an angle like this underground. And so we came in at a certain level and we were going 40 feet across, 14 and a half feet high, and then we would go the full length of that vein, however long it would be at that level, and then when we had mined all that out, they would bring in long hole machines, they would drill 250 feet up, 250 feet down, and then they would blast the whole thing and mine it from underneath. That was, you know, as simple a, an explanation as I can give you. That's what we were doing. Now the problem, this is called a silstope. Now the problem with this silstope we were in, we were doing, was that the, um, the ground was not safe. There was soapstone in it. Now generally, an ore body is a solid or solid mountain. And, and granite is solid mountain, but soapstone is not. You know what soapstone is, right? That's the rock the Eskimos use to carve because it's very soft. Soapstone comes in boulders always, and it is always quoted, coated in an inch or two of mud. So if you're drilling and you drill past the center of a boulder and you blast, what's going to hold up the other half of the boulder up in the back there? Well, nothing is because it's surrounded with mud. And so where it should have been 40 feet, it was 45 and 50 and 55, and it was going like this. And where it should have been... Uh, 14 and a half feet high, it was 15 and 20 and 25 feet high. It was going like this because the ground was so terrible. We were putting expanded metal. We were using extra long bolts. We were trying to hold everything up so that it doesn't come down on our heads, you know. Well, anyway, we came to the point where my partner and I drilled through the ore body back into the granite. That was the end of the stope, and we blasted and went home. The cross shift came in, they looked the situation over, and they refused to go in there. It was too dangerous. We came back the next afternoon. My partner and I w walked up the muck pile, and we were looking the situation over, and it was like, what are we going to do? We were the lead shift. It was up to us to fix it and to secure everything so the long-hole machines could come in. And there was, it was just amazing how dangerous, you know, I'd never been in a place more dangerous than that. Just then, my partner said, look, he said, I've got a computer printout. Did you know we had computer printouts in 1973? We had computer printouts way back then. Yeah. And he said, he was reading this thing, and he says, they didn't pay us for enough bolts. We put in more bolts than they paid us for last month. Well, I said, let's go down and count the bolts that we put in last month. And that's what we did. We went off the muck pile, and we counted the bolts all the way to the far wall, and we're standing there, and then we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about the end of the world. We're talking about the second coming of Christ, and he has a lot of questions. I'm a, 
I'm a new Christian, I'm reading the Bible, I can't help but tell everybody about it. I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist by this time, but I'm excited about what I'm learning, so I'm telling him about it, and, and he's very interested. By the way, he became a Seventh-day Adventist also. Yes, I, someday I should tell you that story. It's a very exciting story. Anyways, we're standing there, and as we're talking about the Lord, a huge rock came down right where we had been standing on the muck pile, just bang, the size of a Volkswagen. And we would have both been flattened like flies there if we had been still standing there, but we weren't, and praise the Lord. And so my partner, who had presence of mind, he said to me, he says, listen, if it begins to rain rocks in here, it's because there's pressure and the thing is in danger of caving in. And he no sooner said that that a rock fell beside him, and another one here, and another one there, and another one there, and he began to run. And he's running, and I'm running. And as I'm running behind him, and he's running a lot faster than I can. Anyways, I look back, and I can see the whole thing is going to come down. And then there's wind, and there's dust, and everything is flying by me, and I can't seem to be running fast enough. I thought, I'm done. I'm done. I can't reach that little tunnel that we were running for. But I did. I can prove it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Got into that little tunnel and the whole thing folded in. So the question remains if I had forfeited God's protection, if I had taken myself out of His hands when He said, You will not have another chance, you have to make a decision today. Where would I be today? I can't prove that. I can't prove it. But in my heart and in my mind, I feel like I would have died at 25 years old. And my partner with me. We both would have been smoked under there. Yeah. I believe that. Because God told me I would not have another chance. And I've never come so close to dying as... In that, in that place underground. And it revolves around what? One little decision. Are decisions that important? Do you make decisions? Or do you just float through life? You know, whatever your mind says, you do. Whatever comes at you, you watch or you read or you taste or you... Do you make decisions? <laughs> That's the question. In Philippians 4, verse 13, there's a statement make, and it made there. It's not a question. It says, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. Isn't that what it says? Is that a question? No, it's not a question. It's a statement. The question is, isn't, can I do all things through Christ that strengthens me? The question is, will I? Because the promise is made. It goes back to what I've been saying all week. Have you, have you noticed how God's promises are uh, ridiculous? <laughs> like, I can do all things? It doesn't make any sense at all. If we had any faith, if we had any faith, we would look at this promise and say, Thank you, Lord. Nothing shall be impossible unto me. Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. Nothing shall be impossible unto us. Is it true? That's what the Bible says. Oh, friends, have faith and make your decisions to, to harmonize with the promises of God. It's just that simple. That's what it says.
Yeah, yeah. Have you ever heard somebody said, say, I can quit smoking anytime I want to? Well, friends, that's not a question. A lot of people quit smoking all the time. I suppose you can quit smoking too. The question is not, will, can you quit smoking? The question is, will you? And it revolves around one little question. And for you who are Seventh-day Adventists, have you ever heard a Seventh-day Adventist say, Oh, I've always wished that I could be a missionary. Well, duh. <laughs> Why are you a Seventh-day Adventist if you're not a missionary? No, really. What's the point of being a Christian at all if it isn't to seek first the kingdom of God to enlarge it and the righteousness of Christ to adopt His character in our characters so that everything is added unto us and everything is added unto God? Isn't that true? Yeah, yeah. So the question is not, it's not a question. <laughs> the question is, why aren't you a missionary if you're not? It's because you've never made the decision to be a missionary. It's just that simple. Just that simple. If you sin, did the devil make you do it? No, no. His job is to tempt you. And he's very, very good at it. But he can't make you sin. If you sin, it's because you have decided to sin. And if you do well, did God force you to do well? Why? No. God has all the grace in the world. God has all the power in the world. God has all the encouragement you could possibly need. And He'll stand behind you if you want to do well. There's no devil or there's no man in the world that can stop you from doing well. But it's your decision. Your decision. Turn with me to Joel Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3. It's one of the minor prophets, it's, but it isn't that hard to find. If you go to Ezekiel, you can go to Ezekiel, then Daniel, then Hosea, and then Joel. So it's only three books in from, from Ezekiel. We're in Joel chapter 3. I'm just using this verse as a kickoff verse, and because also I have three Spirit of Prophecy quotations in my margin, and I don't have to write them in my notes. <laughs> so we're going over here. Now you know that the book of Joel is a book of prophecy, right? The book of Joel points to the last days. It always points to the last days. The whole book of Joel is about the day in which we live today. And it's always pointing to the last days. And the issue there, of course, is the outpouring of the latter rain in the last days. It's a fantastic book. And I appreciate Pastor Paul sharing with us from Joel today. Was it today? Yes, I think so, this morning. Okay, look at verse 14 in Joel chapter 3. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Apparently, there's coming a time in the last days where every individual in the world will be asked to make a decision. You can go to Revelation chapter 13 and see over there that there's a beast who demands to be worshipped in this world. You can go to Revelation chapter 14 and find that there's a God who says, no way, you're not going to worship the beast because if you worship the beast, the wrath of God will be upon you. And so in the end of the world, every individual is going to be called to make a decision as to whether they will worship the beast or worship God. The problem with all of that, the problem with this scenario, is that some people don't make decisions. Do you know that there are some people who don't make decisions? They have been so long making a decision that their, that, that, that their decider is rusty. It doesn't work. Every time they're having to make a decision, they look 
to the person next to them and say, what will you do? Have you ever heard little kids say, hey, what should we do? Well, I don't know. What do you want to do? Well, I don't know. What do you want to do? Well, somebody's going to have to make a decision. <laughs> or we're not going to do anything. But the problem with that, I mean, it's not so bad when you're kids because kids are moldable. <laughs> but when you become older and you have not made any decisions, wives, if you've allowed your husband to make every decision in your life, husbands, if you've allowed your wife to make every decision in your life, what are you going to do when you come to that day when you are called to make a personal decision and it isn't safe to follow husband, wife, children, pastors, anybody else for that matter? The Lord is calling us to read the Scriptures for ourselves and decide for ourselves how we will relate to God. And there's a lot of people, and they're, hey, the churches all around are filled with people like that. Are they not? We can come to them and knock on the door and give them a Bible study about the Sabbath, and it's just like, ugh. I mean, even very famous people. How many of those famous evangelists out there in the world that are not Seventh-day Adventists have been approached by Seventh-day Adventists, presented with the Sabbath truth? They know that it is true, but... How can I leave my church? I mean, what will happen to me if I start keeping Sabbath? I will lose all my reputation and my wealth and my whatever, whatever. And as if anything in this world is important enough to hang on to. There isn't anything in this world important enough to hang on to. Is there? No. No. Friends, study the scriptures for yourself. It's wonderful that we can have camp meeting and I can stand here and I can influence you by the things that I teach you. But friends, are you sure that what I'm saying is true? Have you studied it out for yourself? Are you going to say, well, he's such a good storyteller that he must be right? Well, I'm not right because I'm a good storyteller. <laughs> and I may not be right. Do you know for yourself? Have you studied it for yourself? Are you making decisions for yourself? Do you know how important that is? Oh, me. There isn't anything I think more important than that. Let me read to you three quotations. This is uh, volume 4 of the Testimonies, 454, paragraph 1. Volume 4, 454, paragraph 1. Without decision, that is, without being decisive, an individual is fickle unstable as water, and can never be truly successful. Now, would you like to be successful? Be decisive. Oh, well, what do you mean? I mean, I'm afraid to make mistakes. You, you know, do you know there are people who are afraid to make mistakes? Why, sure. It's scary to make mistakes because we look bad if we make mistakes. We would like to think that we are so intelligent that we don't make mistakes. Well, there is no bigger load of bunk in the whole world, there isn't an individual in the world who hasn't made mistakes and you will make mistakes yet. Do you know that God is not afraid of your making a mistake? As a matter of fact, there's some quotations and I really ought to get this quotation from Ellen White. She says, God has allowed my husband and I to make mistakes so that we could learn by the mistakes that we made. She says that. God allowed a prophet to make a mistake? <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. God is not afraid of our making mistakes. Tell me now, how many of you have been to school? Any? <laughs> have you been in grades 1 and 2 and 3? Did you have to learn math in schools in grade 1, 2 and 3? What does a teacher use to teach math? 
Now, because we're so many, I'll answer the question myself. She uses or he uses math problems. Do you know that there are some individuals who go home to think up of problems for you? Sure, it's amazing, it's terrible, but it's not terrible because there is no other way to learn math. Did you know that? If somebody doesn't give you a math problem, how in the world will you ever learn to add or subtract or divide or multiply or anything else for that matter? You have to have math problems. Well, friends, this is the question. How many times in grades 1 and 2 and 3 did you get all your math problems correct? Did you ever make a mistake? Yes, you did. There's no doubt about it. Okay, so how much does it matter today that you made mistakes in grade 1, 2, and 3 in math? Well, it doesn't matter a hoot. You know today how to add and... and I hope so, anyway. You know today how to add and subtract and multiply and divide and maybe some of you even know how to do calculus. Well, that ain't me, but it, it doesn't matter. I can get along with the little math that I have. And... All those mistakes that you made in the lower grades don't matter anymore. And God in heaven is trying to teach us to live successfully. And the only way he can teach us to live successfully is to give us life problems. And he does it. He, man that is born of a woman, is a few days and full of problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As the sparks fly upward. Isn't that what the Bible says? Yes, problems are guaranteed to us. It's wonderful because we're going to learn a lot through all of these problems. Don't be afraid of making a mistake by making a, a wrong decision. Friend, you are going to make wrong decisions and you're going to learn great things by those wrong decisions. The biggest mistake you can, you can make is to be indecisive, to make no decision. That's the second quotation. This is volume 4, again, of the Testimonies, 344, paragraph 0. Indecision soon becomes decision in the wrong direction. There it is. Better to make a mistake than to be indecisive. Yeah. Better to go forward than to just sit there. Can you imagine sitting on a chair here on the platform and praying, Lord, please guide me and then you stay in your chair and you pray Lord you're not guiding me and you stay in your chair Lord guide me and the Lord says I can't guide you you're not moving this media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more if you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.